Good morning. Um, as you guys um, have a seat, if you can turn to Acts chapter 9 and follow along as I read. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. 
and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put all them outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks, Jenna. <clears throat> so, I wanted to make sure we got the big picture in Acts chapter 9, because this chapter is an incredibly important history of the church and of Christianity itself. In fact, it's so important, there were these two guys named Gilbert and George, they must be pretty important, Gilbert and George, in the 1700s, and they were both really cynical about the Christian faith. So cynical, in fact, that they got together and they said to each other, what are the two most important events in the history of Christianity? And if we could disprove these events, we could disprove Christianity completely. And they decided it was the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the conversion of the Apostle Paul. And so they went their separate ways to do a thorough study of both topics. And then they came back together. And both of them had separately concluded that the event they were studying was beyond a shadow of a doubt true. And being smart, studious guys, they both decided to write a book about their findings. And so Gilbert West wrote a book called Observations on the Resurrection of Jesus Christ. And George Lyttelton wrote Observations on the Conversion and Apostleship of St. Paul. Now here is a summary of what Lyttelton concluded about this text specifically 
and a few other texts that he sprinkled in in his study. The English is a little bit 1700s-ish. I don't think that's a word, but you know what I mean. So just follow along with me. He said this. Now it must of necessity be that the person attesting this, these things of himself, that being the Apostle Paul, and of whom they are related in so authentic a manner, either was an imposter who said what he knew to be false with an intent to deceive, or he was an enthusiast who by the force of an overheated imagination imposed on himself or he was deceived by the fraud of others, and all that he said must be imputed to the power of that deceit. Or what he declared to have been is the cause of his conversion, and to have happened in consequence of it, did all really happen, and therefore the Christian religion is a divine revelation. So George Lyttelton looked at the conversion of Paul, he said, you have to put it in one of these two categories. You have to say that he was an imposter and his intent in recording these events is to knowingly deceive people or his conversion is of such an authentic nature that it proves that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ and that what he wrote was inspired of God. Here's what I'm, I think we're going to see in this text as sort of a big idea, not only about the apostle Paul, but also more generally speaking, that Christian conversion is an act of God. When you look at a genuine Christian conversion, when you see who somebody was before they came to know Jesus and who they became after they met Jesus, you have to bow the knee and say, I can't explain that in any other way. That is of God. So we're looking at three aspects of Saul's conversion and conversion more generally that show that it is of God. We're looking at the necessity of conversion, the miracle of conversion, and the effect of conversion. First of all, the necessity of conversion. Let's go back and read Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. This was Saul in his unconverted state. But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This is a consistent description of Saul's character which has been described thus far in the book of Acts. We've encountered Saul one other time so far in Acts. In Acts chapter 8, verses 1 and 3, it said this. And Saul approved of his execution. Remember, Saul was the one who was standing there as Stephen was being stoned. And in Acts 8.3, it says, Saul was ravaging the church 
And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, just to show sort of the disgusting nature of this man's character, the word ravaging that is used there is literally the ravaging of a body by a wild beast. This man was filled with hatred and with self-righteous pride. And he had directed his hatred toward the disciples of the Lord. So he is literally going house to house, dragging people out, committing them to prison, and he's also having them publicly murdered. The word that comes to mind to describe the Apostle Paul is that he was a terrorist. He was a terrorist. Going from place to place and persecuting people because of their faith in Jesus. Toward the end of Acts, Acts chapter 26, 11, this is how Saul, who's also called Paul, describes himself. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. So that's what we have here. Here, if we sort of put Acts chapter 9, 1 and 2 and Acts chapter 26, 11 together, we have this picture of Saul going to the high priest. He asked for permission to go to Damascus to carry out a religiously sanctioned terrorist act where he would go into the synagogue. And at that point, Christianity and Judaism were incredibly mixed because after all, Christianity is a fulfillment of Judaism. And so he would go into the synagogue and he would presumably stand up in front of people and he would say, is anyone here a Christian? The room would go silent. And then a few brave souls would raise their hands and they say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Saul would use their boldness against them, drag them out of these places, and take them back to Jerusalem. It wasn't enough that he could persecute the people of Jerusalem. He had to take his terrorism globally. Make as many people miserable in their Christian faith as he could. So here's the question. That's sort of the outward actions that Saul was carrying out. What was his inward motivation? He fills us in in Philippians chapter 3. He says this in verses 4 through 6. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law blameless. What was the driving force behind Saul's persecution of the church? 
it was an incredibly elevated view of himself. He was really good at keeping the law. From all outward appearances, Saul was a good moral person. He took the faith to its logical conclusion. And so, that caused him to look at anyone who didn't have the same ideals, the same convictions, and the same ability to keep the law in total disrepute. In fact, he hated other people. He hated weak people. He hated people who would need a savior. So he felt this intense sense of zeal and pride toward other people. And his solution was to kill them. As I was thinking about this, it reminded me of an animal attack that I saw. Okay, so when I was in college, there was kind of this famous hawk on our college campus. And this hawk was known to sort of rest in this one tree. And people would literally gather around and watch this happen. And what this hawk would do is you'd see him looking over into this big grassy area over to the side. And all of a sudden, he would spot a squirrel. You'd see him, just his eyes piercing over into this open field at the squirrel. All of a sudden, the hawk would fly way up into the air and it would start soaring above as if to show the squirrel who was boss. And all of a sudden, the hawk would swoop down. It was amazing to watch. Pick up the squirrel by the scruff of his neck. Carry him over to a tree. This was actually kind of amazing to watch. And he would take his talon and begin to slice open the squirrel and eat his guts out in front of everyone. This made like the school paper, all these things. People would stand around and watch this happen. It was amazing. This is what the Apostle Paul was like. Soaring above. Weak Christians in pride. Hating them. Swooping down to persecute them and kill them. So here's what we can think. We can think, whoo, I'm glad I'm not like Saul. I'm glad I don't have these same problems that Saul had. And maybe your self-righteousness and pride does not express itself in physical violence. But what we see here in Saul's character is a vivid portrayal of the human condition. Which of us does not at times 
have an elevated view of ourself. Which of us has not been filled with self-righteousness and pride? Which of us has not looked down on others and in a sense done them violence with our attitude, our words, the glare of our eyes. What this text is showing us is something really stunning about the human condition. That actually, the greater danger is our religious zeal. Even greater than overt immorality. Because our religious zeal feels so right. We feel so justified when we're on the right side of history, when we're doing the right thing. This crosses into sort of the religious world, but also the secular world. Everybody thinks they're right and is filled with pride. That's the problem with the world. That's the reason that people need to be converted So here's the question I have. If self-righteousness and pride is the problem with the human condition, how can anybody be saved? How can you possibly let go of that? How can you stop being on this treadmill of trying to be better than other people and achieve more, be greater, elevating yourself? Isn't that the whole kind of purpose of life? How can anyone be saved? Let's talk about the miracle of conversion. We're looking at chapter 9, verses 4 through 6, and verses 17 through 18. A description of Saul's conversion. And And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. So remember, here's the picture. Saul, breathing out murderous threats on his way to Damascus to cause Christians to blaspheme so that he can rip them out of the synagogue, take them bound to Jerusalem, and presumably have them killed. His mission is terrorism. He's not thinking, I'd really like to walk down to that road to Damascus because maybe I'll give my life to Jesus. His goal is to kill people who give their life to Jesus. And he's on the road, and here's how his conversion happens. He gets smacked upside the head by Jesus. Jesus knocks him down with a blinding light. There is no decision for Christ here. There is Jesus Christ confronting a terrorist and saying, Why are you persecuting me? 
Lord of the universe, Jesus. This is Jesus with a tattoo on his leg and a sword in his hand. In case you're wondering, this is not gentle, hold the lamb, Jesus. This is Lord of heaven and earth confronting Saul. And all of a sudden, Saul, the tough guy, is no longer a tough guy. He is stunned. He is traumatized. The very thing he was intending is the opposite of what's happening in this moment. We can often begin to talk of Christian conversion like it is something we do. Oh, it's simple. How do, you, how do you come to know Jesus? You just give your life to Jesus. Not so fast. This gives us an entirely different perspective on what Christian conversion is. It is an act of God. Scripture says, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Here's how Paul describes conversion after he was converted. It's like God creating the universe. It's a miracle. And the effect that it will have on you is actually traumatic. At least dramatic. Here's the way that a woman in our day described her conversion. Okay, this woman was a tenured professor in queer theory at Syracuse University and was an out lesbian. She came to Christ. She wrote this book called Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Her name's Rosaria Butterfield. This is what she said about her conversion. Conversion put me in a complicated and comprehensive chaos. I sometimes wonder when I hear other Christians pray for the salvation of the lost, if they realize that this comprehensive chaos is the desired end of such prayers. Often people ask me to describe the lessons that I learned from this experience. I can't. It was too traumatic. Sometimes in crisis, we don't really learn lessons. Sometimes the result is simpler and more profound. Sometimes our character is simply transformed. Later, she says, all the testimonies I'd heard up to this point were egocentric and filled with pride. Aren't I the smarty pants for choosing Christ? I made a decision for Christ. Aren't I great? I committed my life to Christ. Aren't I better than those heathens who haven't? This whole line of thinking is both pervasive among evangelical Christians and absurd. My whole body recoiled against this line of thinking. I'm proof of the pudding. I didn't choose Christ. Nobody chooses Christ. Christ chooses you or you're dead. After Christ chooses you, you respond because you must. Period. It's not a pretty story. Amen! Christian conversion is an act of God. Not everybody's story is going to feel the same. But it is initiated by Jesus Christ. You are not born a Christian. You did not make your faith your own. 
You did not decide for Christ one day. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's alive, and he saves people. Here's an illustration, okay? In case that, that quote didn't hit you right between the eyes. That was the goal of it. Here's a quote. Here, here's a, here's a, an illustration, okay? In Montana, not too long ago, I went horseback riding, and my lovely wife decided to get on a horse, which in hindsight was not a great idea, okay? She jumps on a horse. She's laughing. She jumps on a horse. At one point, I mean, this is like mountain terrain, like ups and downs and, you know, rocks and all this stuff. We're riding on horses, and I'm a little bit ahead of her. Truth be told, I was a little annoyed, all right? She was, she was a little apprehensive. I was wanting to, like, pull a John Wayne or something. And so we're going, you know, riding, riding on these horses. And all of a sudden, I hear my wife yell, ah! And I look back, and she is flying off of her horse and, like, tumbling. And at first, I'm like, oh, my goodness, I am such a jerk. Why was I not right there? And then she was laughing, so I was laughing. It was okay, but she's laying on the ground, next to, you know, on this mountain, having fallen off a horse, and she's not hurt. Okay. Guys, that's what conversion's like. Here's how, okay? Saul, right? He's up on his horse. He gets thrown off of his horse. His horse is pride, this egocentric life. Here's why Christian conversion is not possible by human effort. You might choose to convert to another religion, but here's what other religions do. They stoke your pride. They make you feel like a smarty pants. They're for people who are good, who can keep the rules, all that kind of stuff. Here's what Christian conversion does. It is an utter realization that you are nothing. That your whole life up to that point has been one giant mistake. Sin. Nobody wants to convert to that. You need Jesus Christ to come change your heart and then you have to respond because you get up after falling off the horse and you're like, okay, what do I do next? That's the question Saul's asking. First of all, he's blind. He's been struck blind. He's been confronted by Jesus Christ and he's beginning to ask the question, what do I do next? And we see the effect almost immediately of his traumatic, life-altering encounter with the living Christ. We see the effect of his conversion. Acts 9, 20 through 21. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? of those who called upon this name. And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? Now, isn't that interesting? Saul goes to the very synagogue where his intention was to drag people off 
and to commit them to prison. And apparently, he was so notorious that they had already gotten word that he was coming to do this. And he goes into those synagogues not to trumpet his own righteousness, not to stand in his religious zeal and pride and to hate others, but to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God. Here is the essential effect of Christian conversion. You go from being a person who is centered on yourself where you are the hero of your story to a person that is centered on Jesus Christ. A person whose life has essentially been about proclaiming your own righteousness. Look how smart I am. Look how beautiful I am. Look how good I am. Two, I am nothing. Jesus Christ is everything. Your life mission becomes no longer about telling other people about yourself and getting them to praise you, but it becomes about telling them about Jesus Christ and getting them to praise him. And in this, paradoxically, you find your freedom. Did you know you were not meant to carry the weight of being the hero of your own story. You know, you just might be exhausted like, I've been trying so hard to be a good Christian, to be a good parent, to be a good husband or wife, to be a good employee, always trying to be Good enough. And in that rat race, you've noticed you've been hating other people. Not loving other people. Not able to obey God's commands. What if Jesus was the hero of your story? How could that be possible? What if Jesus lived the life that you could never live? What if he actually is your righteousness? What if he performed for you so that it's not on you anymore to be good enough? What if it's actually not about how good you are, but it's about how good he is? What if his death actually means something for you? That he died in your place to pay the penalty for your sin. He took your sin on himself. And what if he lives to represent you before God? How freeing would that be? Okay, so imagine the scenario. Imagine if you were incredibly proud of the amount of money that you made. You had a really good job. You made more money than basically any of your same age peers. And 
Underneath that pride in your money was a pride in your work ethic. You are a great worker. You make more money than other people. And because of that, you sort of look down on them, and they always sense that you're proud of that, and it sort of underlies all of your relationships with people. Then all of a sudden, one of your rich relatives dies, and they leave you $5 million. And all of your friends become aware that the reason now that you're so much richer than they are is not because you worked so hard for the money, but because you got a free gift. So your friends begin to see you a little bit differently, and you begin to see yourself a little bit differently, and your pride moves from your own works to actually praising the generosity of someone else. It begins to transform you. Because you recognize that your wealth is not something that you earned. Similarly, when you're converted to Christ, you recognize that your righteous standing is not something that you earned. You have been given a gift. You have been made holy through the righteousness of someone else. And the effect in your life will become that more and more life is about him, not about you. Now, don't imagine that Paul was instantaneously transformed into a humble person. He went through a process. We know he spent 14 years studying the scriptures, becoming more of a humble man. It was a process. But something interesting to note is as you read the letters of Paul, in the order in which they were written, he becomes more and more focused on the grace of Jesus and more and more aware of his own brokenness. In fact, in one of the last letters they wrote, 1 Timothy, in chapter 1, this is how he describes life in Christ. He said, The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Do you feel like you're the worst sinner in the room? Get this, the Apostle Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is God's word, that he gets that title. He's the worst. The very worst. Why did God save the worst? To show us that he is perfectly patient. Jesus will confront you and knock you off your horse. And then he will pick you up and hold you in his arms 
and love you with perfect patience for the rest of your life. Is he drawing you now? Is he confronting you now? Is he speaking to you now? Don't resist him while he speaks. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm uh, personally thankful for the conversion of Saul. I'm thankful that you took this um, terrible man, this hate-filled man, and that you made him a humble, gentle, kind lover of Jesus. Because when I look at him, I see that it's possible that I can change. That we can be forgiven. I see the power of Jesus to transform lives. God, thank you that in this community, you are confronting people, you are healing people, that you are living in our midst, that we're not reading about a legend that used to do amazing things, but we're seeing a testimony of the same Jesus who is alive today. Thank you, Jesus, for your patience with us. In Jesus' name, amen.